Good morning out there in religious studies land. I'm once again trying to keep the energy up. I'm David Robertson. And I'm Christopher Carter, and we are the Religious Studies Project, brought to you as ever by the BASR, NAASR, and IAHR. And uh, Nasser will be meeting right at this very moment um, at the AAR conference in Boston. So hello to them and hello to all the delegates. Indeed, and uh, many of our BASR uh, chums will be there as well. Um, Another BASR chum is the chum who's coming up in this interview. It's George Cresides, um, who was speaking to Brianne Fallon about changing your story, assessing ex-member narratives. Yeah, a development of his earlier podcast, one of our first podcasts ever, in fact, on the insider-outsider problem in the study of religion, something which I'm no doubt will be being discussed at um, AAAR right now. So without further ado, let's pass over to Brianne and George. Ex-member testimony can be difficult to deal with. Such testimony tends to receive privileged treatment in anti-cult literature, while some academics are prone to be sceptical, even suggesting ex-member testimony is worthless. So how do we deal with such testimonies, especially considering the increasing forms of such testimony that now comes with social media? What role do such accounts play in the creation of identity for ex-members? To discuss this topic, I have with me Dr. George Crisides. Is that how I say your name? Crusidis. Crusidis. Okay, I'll do that again. Um, to discuss this topic today, I have with me Dr. George Crusidis. George is a long-term friend of the Religious Studies Project and is Honorary Research Fellow at York St. John University and the University of Birmingham, having been Head of Religious Studies at the University of Wolverhampton from 2001 until 2008. Has, he has written extensively on new religious movements, especially Jehovah's Witnesses, Recent publications include The Historical Dictionary of Jehovah's Witnesses, The Bloomsbury Companion to New Religious Movements, co-edited with Benjamin E. Zeller, and Jehovah's Witnesses Continui Continuity Continuity actually and Change. George is co-vice chair of Inform, the information network on religious movements based at the S the LSE, and was founded by Eileen Barker in nineteen eighty eight. George is also on various editorial boards and panels and is currently co-editing an anthology entitled The Insider-Outsider Debate, together with Stephen Gregg. He is also editing an anthology for the Rutledge Informed series entitled Minority Religions in Europe and the Middle East. So thank you very much for joining us today, George. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Um, so I was wondering if we could just start with a discussion of how different scholars deal with ex-member testimonies and what your opinion is of those different sort of ways of dealing with such testimony? Well, there are inevitably um, a handful of scholars who support the anti-cult movement, although they don't like it being called the anti-cult movement, but um, there is a body that um, is somewhat hostile and uh, they tend to privilege the ex-member. They will say the ex-member has been inside, now he or she is outside, so uh, they've seen it from both points of view and are in a better position than someone like myself that has never joined a new religious movement. So um, that's one point of view. Um, 
There are others like uh, James Beckford who say, well, if you've come out uh, in uh, a new religious movement like the Jehovah's Witnesses, then um, your testimony is going to be biased. Maybe you're going to be a bit embarrassed about having been uh, involved in a group that's not very popular and has an unusual worldview. So uh, you devise some kind of explanation about um, how and why you joined and how you got disillusioned and uh, how you were conned into joining maybe and how you were deceived and so on so um james beckford uh, thinks that uh, the ex-member devises a scenario as he puts it to account for entry and exit there are other scholars like um um, Lonnie Cliver and Brian Wilson, who have said their testimony is totally invalid. We should just reg- disregard it totally. It's worthless. Mm. Now, I don't go along with that either, because I, th- I think particularly when you read written ex-members' accounts, um, okay, they're biased, but uh, we're always taught to evaluate our sources. So it's important to uh, see... Um, why they're saying what they do, what it is that might be true, uh, what sounds plausible, you triangulate your information, what other people have said. Very often you can get unwitting testimony about um, conditions within an organisation. Um, there's a lot of good material you get particularly from high-ranking ex-members, people that have, for example, in one case, been on the governing body of um, Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, they don't publish their minutes or anything like that. Mm. So um, until um, until Raymond Francis' book came out, I don't think any of us had much of a clue uh, what actually went on in the, the governing body, uh, uh, how they voted on things, what sort of topics they discussed. And that's really interesting. We shouldn't just say, well, that's ex-member, um, he got cheesed off with the, the movement, we're not going to listen to it, because that way you would lose uh, an awful lot of very good information. So there's sort of this element of the fact that's behind the supposed fiction that we can kind of draw out from testimonies, I guess. Yeah, well, fact and fiction tend to kind of blend into each other. Um, Actually, that's uh, some work I would like to do as a piece of follow-up research for my work on JWs, because there are a lot of uh, narratives, um, and it's a pity I didn't get my act together on this before this particular conference, which is on narratives, Mm. because you get some narratives that claim to be absolutely factual, you get others that are um, on their own uh, account works of fiction. Mm. Uh, the stories uh, invented about um, Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, and then in between, you get um, pieces of, some people call them faction, that are cross between fact and fiction. They'll say, well, this is based on such and such a congregation, but we're not telling the reader who it is because of confidentiality. Mm-hmm. And actually, there is a, a wealth of literature there about um, what it means for a Jehovah's Witness to be out uh, doing house-to-house work, staffing a literature cart and things like that. And... Um, in some cases, how they fudge the statistics that they report back to their elders. And I think things like that are really fascinating because you can't get that in copies of the Watchtower, for example. So um, that's a future project, um, reading up on the fiction, faction narrative and uh, seeing what one can get out of it. So 
how do you think that we should be dealing with ex-member testimonies in your opinion? Well, what I'm uh, presenting at this conference uh, is the view that ex-member testimony is about one's identity, right? Because um, you can have uh, different identities depending on what your interests are. Okay, so, um, you know, maybe you kind of dabbled in a hobby for a couple of weeks and got fed up with it. So that's not part of your identity, and there are some people that actually um, go along to a new religious movement um, in that kind of role. Mm-hmm. Um, they'll maybe go along for a couple of weeks or uh, maybe just the ones and uh, then decide it's not for them or decide they don't like being out at night or something like that. And um, we don't hear so much of these testimonies because they're not very interesting. Mm. Um, so... Uh, where a religion is not part of one's identity, you don't need to invent a story about why you came out. Mm. I mean, I don't need to invent a story about why I gave up stamp collecting <laughs> or something like that. So, um, on the other hand, if the religion has been a big part of your identity, uh, maybe it's been your pay- paid employment even, mm. then um you're going to have problems coming out. You're going to uh, have to think, how do I shape a new identity? And it can't be really practical things that are involved, like uh, how do I get a job? Where will I live? Who are my friends going to be? Because uh, maybe some of them will uh, keep up with you, mm-hmm. but probably most of them won't. So it's a whole new life that you're inventing in that sort of case. So um, people have to find ways of doing that. In some extreme cases, uh, the ex-member has actually made ex-membership part of his or her own identity, uh, perhaps uh, being a so-called cult counsellor. There are people that have uh, made their professions out of Mm. that. Um, Not all that many, but uh, you tend to hear about them more than the others because they're prominent. They've got a Mm. lot to say about the movement. And um, there is a saying, you can get the member out of the cult, but you can't get the cult out of the member. (laughs) That's really interesting. So, I mean, that's true about these people. Um, Actually, they're very good informants, some of them. You know, if you can get them tamed and talking to you, there are a couple that will send me lots of extremely good information about the Unification Church. Mm. So, um, usually if I want to know something, I will write to them and to say, um, I've heard about so and so, what do you know about it? And then I'll get back a lot of good information. Uh, kind of mentally, they're still in the movement, mm. even though, uh, in terms of, what they believe, what they practice, they're out of it. Mm. So in that sort of way, um, you're finding these testimonies really useful. Mm. Um, Do you think there's a difference between different types of testimony? So we we already talked about fact and fiction, but, you know, a biography as opposed to writing to your your, uh, ex-members that you are familiar with as Mm. opposed to, you know, perhaps something on social media, is there a – a difference between using those different types, do you think? Is there well, one you yeah, prefer? Absolutely. Um, I think um, a lot of stuff that's not terribly worthwhile are the stuff that you get on uh, bulletin boards from ex-Jehovah's Witnesses. Mm. 
Um, a lot of it is misinformation. Um, a lot of it is actually very hostile. And uh, even the uh, treatment that uh, they're getting in Russia, which is quite appalling. I don't know if you've been following that at all. But, um, yeah, the authorities have closed them down and oh, confiscated okay. all their uh, uh, um, all their properties. And on some of these anti-JW sites, you're getting people saying, wish they had done it sooner. <laughs> you oh, know, wow. yeah, I mean, there's no, uh, uh kind of, uh, sympathy for, uh, these people, whatever their beliefs might be. Mm. So, um, there's not a lot of point in reading, uh, much of that kind of stuff, mm. except that it tells you more about the person that's writing than yeah. about the movement itself. But um, on the other hand, um, there are some very good ex-members that can give you some good information. Mm, definitely. I think we should delve more into this idea of, of identity yeah. and creating that sort of, I don't know what you would call it, an ex- do you think they create an ex-member persona? Uh, some of them do. Uh, I mean, I can decide, I guess, if I'm an ex-member, whether I want to make a feature out of that, whether mm. I want to tell people, yes, I was a Jehovah's Witness and um, this is uh, very much part of my life having been one. Now, actually, I do know of one uh, former JW elder who has actually become a Church of Scotland minister. Oh, wow. Now, I don't know much about him, um, but uh, I can see that um, somebody could make a feature out of that and to say, well, that's been my past life, mm. but now I've kind of seen the light or however he wants to put it. Mm. Um, I have heard of um, one other Church of Scotland minister who uh, served a long prison sentence as a murderer and then uh, he he repented and uh, made good and uh, uh, evidently he makes a feature out of that because um, it's got a good biblical message about mm. conversion. Mm. You know, Paul uh, writing to uh, the Corinthians, I think it is. No, it's the Romans. I've got it right. He says, he lists a whole lot of, um, uh, misdeeds that people committed. And then he says, and some of such were you. So it's all very biblical if you want to do it that way to say, well, that's my past life, but uh, now it's all changed thanks to Jesus Christ or whatever. Mm. That's one way of creating your new identity. Um, another way of, um, Changing your identity is simply to conceal it, uh, mm. to say, well, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to talk about this. Uh, I'm just going to get on with my new life. Mm. So there are different ways of creating uh, th- this new identity. But one way or another, um, if a religion has been a major part of your life and you're coming out, then there is an identity problem. Mm. You, you do need to think, well, who am I? What do I want to be? And how do I want to shape up this new life that's lying ahead? Mm. Sorry to interrupt the episode, but we just wanted to let you know to remind you about our Patreon link. Uh, the Religious Studies Project has always been free since its inception, uh, but we know that there's a great problem in academia with uh, people not being paid for the work that they're expected to do, particularly early career scholars. And we at the RSP want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. So you can help if you can spare even one pound a month um, by going to patreon.com slash Project RS and subscribing. We know that these podcasts are very useful for people who are teaching and people in their learning. So if you can help, um, 
either by subscribing there or by making a one-off donation using the PayPal button on our website. It'd be greatly appreciated and will help us keep bringing you this podcast for free and fight against exploitation in academia. But now, back to the episode. Do you think that, um, like, as scholars, we need to be sort of aware of this identity change when we're looking at ex-member testimonies, how they've sort of, Mm. how they've come out of whatever movement they were a part of and how they've sort of transitioned into whether they've been really open about it, whether they've concealed it and then been Mm. open about it. Is that something we need to take into consideration when looking at these testimonies and which ones Mm. we really should be looking at for for evidence? Well, absolutely, yeah, because evaluating your sources means uh, asking questions like who is telling me this, Mm. what is their motivation, Uh, how much knowledge do they have? Sometimes people can pretend to have more knowledge than they Mm. really do about the movement they're in. A lot of um, ex-JWs will say, well, uh, the society has got a history of failed prophecy. Mm. No, I don't think that's true. That's a popular myth that is propagated by ex-members. Mm. I'm not saying they've never ever revised a date or given it a new meaning, but uh, there's one website that I think goes through every year from 1877 when I think the, uh, the society was uh, first getting going and then uh, giving some kind of prophetic statement they made and how it failed and mm. um, that's not really a correct exposition of uh, what they're saying mm. so yeah I think we do need to ask um, what is the degree of knowledge that this person has because mm. um, there can be a view that if you've been inside you know all about it mm. and I think anyone that follows a religion doesn't know all about it uh, you yeah. can't know all about your religion. It's just too big a subject. Yeah. I'm going to throw a bit of a left field question at you that I didn't tell you I was going to ask. Oh, dear. Um, we always get this sort of image of um, ex-members coming together and then forming like an ex-member yeah. group. Yes. Has that has that come across in your work a lot? Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah there's a lot of that. Mm. Um, and I think that's part of forming a, a new identity because um, you need um, to have friends. Uh, friends need to have things in common. Mm. And the obvious thing in common that you've got if you're an ex-member is being an ex-member. So, yeah, there there are JW groups. I've been invited to go to one or two of their events, but I kind of feel I'd be gate-crashing. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, they get together from time to time, and um, I'd be interested to know what they talk about because mm. they often say you don't have to talk about Jehovah's Witnesses if you come to our meet. Mm. Uh, now, whether they actually do talk about JWs or whether they talk about some other interests mm. that they've got, I don't know. But uh, that would be interesting. But, yeah, that's part of shaping your identity to um, uh, get uh, an ex-member group going. Mm. Um, Of course, uh, yeah, I think the ex-member group is uh, more a kind of phenomenon in itself that is worth Mm. noting if you're you're a scholar. Um, I suspect that um, in the ex-member group you get a kind of snowball effect of all the kind of um, moans that they've got about the Watchtower Society. Um, I see some of their stuff on Facebook. Mm. That seems to be kind of how it works. Somebody will uh, put something on, maybe about Russia, and then Mm. somebody will add a rude comment about it, and Mm. um, it tends to kind of further uh, kind of lack of sympathy. Mm. It'd be interesting to 
to look at how like social media has played a role in creating those new ex-member groups because, of course, social media people from all over the globe can come together and sort of share their stories. Has do you think social media has had a, a, a big part in ex-member testimony and getting yeah. that out there? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, there, there are one or two well-known websites. Um, or uh, are the websites? Or uh, I can never know what the right terminology yeah. is about the about cyberspace. But yeah. uh, there is, a, I think, it's a, a Facebook. Um, group thing group yeah yeah but how well do you know your moon and, oh. and that's about the unification church mm. um that's actually got a lot of good information there it's yeah. not just people slagging them off mm. um but uh, yeah the obvious thing about social media is that uh, we don't need to uh, have our friends sitting opposite each other the way mm. we're sitting opposite um you can get them from any part of the the globe and um you don't have to um, meet up with them physically. But then again, the fact that you've got this group enables you to organize mm. these physical meetings, which they, they do. Mm. It would be interesting to know with the advent of social media if that is encouraging more people to go to a group, people who may have, without social media, sort of just concealed on their own. But that idea that you know social media can bring so many people together, it be mm. interesting to know whether – there have been more people willing to join an ex-member group because of social media because, mm. you know, you can kind of dip your toe in with Facebook before you go to a meeting. It's almost yeah. the complete reverse of joining the movement in the first place. Yeah, yeah, that, I think that's probably right. The other question is whether it might actually encourage people to join a group mm. by, um, by giving publicity. I remember when I was researching the Unification Church in the early days, there were two kind of improbable people that um, had come along to this seminar. In fact, the Unification Church um, didn't seem to want these two to join, um, you know, because, I mean, they weren't very bright. Uh, I think they were unemployed. They were looking for somewhere to live, and mm. that's not what they were after. And uh, I think they may even have been psychologically disturbed. So uh, a new religion won't want to get a reputation for attracting the, the wrong people. Mm. But... Um, yeah, they had come along, and I had asked them, uh, you know, what what brought you here? Weren't you attracted? Weren't you put off by the bad publicity the Unification Church was getting? And they said, "Oh no, uh, what we had heard actually made us interested and mm. want to come." So there can be the kind of reverse effect. Mm. You might think, "Well, yeah, I wonder what this is about." Yeah, it's really. I just think. Social media has just, you know, taken a completely different road for so much of our study, particularly with testimony and people being able to, you know, share their voice mm. and share their opinion. Um, before we finish up, um, you're presenting today at BASR. Is there anything from your paper you would like to add to the add to the talk that we've haven't discussed so far? Well, I think we've been, how long have we been talking now? It's been a lot more than 20 minutes. Mm. And my talk is only 20 minutes, yeah. so I think I've probably added uh, quite a bit. It's actually going to be part of a chapter mm -hmm. um, in the anthology on the inside and outside the debate that uh, Stephen Gregg and I mm. are getting together. So um, there will be a kind of longer discussion. Mm. Um, what I will be saying in the, the, the paper also, which we didn't cover, but mm. it's a bit more technical. It's about the kind of typologies of ex-member. Because okay. people like David Bromley and Massimo Intravenia distinguish between different types. Mm. And um, 
they distinguish on the basis of how the yeah, person came out of the movement and um, uh, what sort of uh, conditions made them come out. Mm. Um, I mean, what I'm suggesting is that um, these typologies um, have got their limitations. Mm. Um, sociologists talk about ideal types, and I think that's one of the, the problems about sociology. When have you got an ideal type mm. and when have you just got a model that's too crude for the purposes that mm. um, you're using it? So um, I think an account of X members has got to go beyond um, distinguish uh, distinctions like uh, the defector, the ordinary leave taker, the apostate. Mm. Um, there are all sorts of types of lever depending on the identity that they've created for themselves within the movement. Mm. Well, so, you know, whether they're just an unbaptized publisher as the kind of lowest rank is called in the Jehovah's Witnesses or whether you're one of the 144,000 in the governing body right at the, the top. So, yeah. um, you know, uh, these kind of distinctions of the type of member you are mm. will affect the way you leave. It will also affect the story you give about um, leaving and about life in the organization. Just mm. almost sort of, you know, an identity sort of wave, you know, I was this and then that's infected how my identity has then come out of it, come out mm. of the movement. Um, I think your talk is going to be so interesting. I'm very excited. Well, I hope so. <laughs> um, thank you so much for joining us today and I hope you enjoy the rest of the conference. Well, thanks very much and uh, thanks again for the invitation. It's our pleasure. Excellent to hear that interview there. It was excellent to um, meet Brianne uh, face-to-face for the first time in Chester at the BSR conference, and excellent to hear the paper that George gave um, on which that podcast was based. So, uh, Yeah, and um, Brianne will also be interviewing at the AESR, the Australian uh, Annual Conference, very soon. Should have checked the date before we went to air, but... Yeah, you know, we covered it there, (laughs) covered it nicely. Um, You know, we don't have too much news for you at the moment, folks, because we're into that period of the year where everything's just sort of plodding along mechanically, but we're still keeping the podcast coming out, still keeping our responses, Um, still have the opportunities digest, although as we record, I am late with last week's one, so apologies for that, but you're going to get it before this comes out. Yeah, indeed, it's, uh, you know, we're running to keep up on lots of fronts at the moment, so it's not a time for new developments, um, but hopefully we'll have some some ideas and some stuff later in the year. Yeah, I think we've only really got about four weeks left um, before we get to our festive special, so, oh, dear. Um, and I know a lot of you um, map your year out by the RSP festive special. Yeah, Um who can blame you? I am mapping my year out by trying to find time to edit the Christmas special. It's going to be uh, quite the spectacle this year. But we've got a few weeks still to go. Um, do consider supporting the project um, if you're using it in your teaching or your learning through our Patreon page. And uh, do come back next week uh, to hear the final episode in our NGO series, uh, once again conducted by Catherine Shear and Giuseppe Bellotta. And this time it's with Elena Shi speaking on Christian evangelical organizations in global anti-trafficking networks. So that's 
quite going to be quite heavy stuff, but good stuff. Yeah, we've got some lighter ones before we get to the end of the year as well, so it all balances out. As ever, thanks for listening. The Religious Studies Project is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. Brought to you by Founders and Editors-in-Chief Chris Cotter and David Robertson, and Managing Editor Thomas J. Coleman III. Our features are edited by Jonathan Tuckett, and our opportunities digest by Yana Shirley. Podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock, with audio assistance from Gregory Schneider and Samuel Ward. Social media managed by Ray Radford, and sales and marketing by Sammy Bishop. Don't forget, you can support the project using our Amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links, or by donating at patreoncom projectrs And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Google Plus, YouTube, iTunes, and other portals.